Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we begin the fourth quarter of 2022, no shortage of items to cover. This against the backdrop of persistent volatility in the markets. So joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to the forum, Mike Kentopoulos, the Director of Fixed Income for Richard Bernstein Advisors. Also joining us on the podcast today, glad to welcome back Leslie Falcone the head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Leslie, Mike, welcome back. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners. At this point, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Mike. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I mean, you could have you, you could have picked a better time to start talking about fixed income, particularly not only this year, but what we've been through this this week. So thank you so much for taking the time. And um, I know our, our advisors and clients are really are looking forward to, to your outlook and what you have to say. So um, thank you. So why don't, we just, why, don't we, why don't we really just dive in here? Because, you know, as we know, you know, fixed income has faced a very challenging environment in 2022. You know, we know that we've seen this, this really large rise in interest rates, that the correlations between equity and fixed income, you know, really have not worked, as we know, um, given as anticipated. And I'm just curious, sort of, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you see, now that we've normalized a bit in interest rates, the landscape overall as we go into not just the this last quarter of the year, but also as we head into the first quarter of 23? Yeah, Leslie, you know, it, it's been an interesting year, but I'm not entirely sure it should have been unexpected. Um, you know, you basically have four stages of an interest rate cycle. It, it was very, very clear that uh, throughout the back half of 2020, all of 2021, and the first half of, of this year, we are in the first two stages of the cycle. And, and the first two stages are really marked by strong economic growth, strong profit growth, a Fed that gets behind the curve, and ultimately, um, you know, the market loses confidence in the Fed's ability to, to rein in growth and inflation, and inflation expectations uh, jump dramatically along with, along with yields. And that's a pretty normal playbook, and it's exactly what we saw, you know, last year in the first half of this year. And, you know, at RBA, what we think is that we have moved on from stage two, uh, where the Fed has lost their credibility, and, and on to stage three, where you get earnings and economic growth starting to fall at the same time that you have the Fed begin to hike rates aggressively in order to bring down long-term uh, inflation and, and, and demand. And, and at that point in the cycle... Uh, although there's a lot of volatility associated with it, that's the time you want to start to overweight duration. Um, what's a little bit different this time is, of course, that you've had a tremendous amount of QE and now QT, and that's contributing to volatility. Now, volatility works both ways. It doesn't just act um, you know, to increase yields, but also can act to decrease yields, depending on what's going on in the macro environment. But, you know, we think... Um, we think, listen, this is not as atypical as, as investors actually, uh, actually think it is. Uh, and we think ultimately sometime in the next 12 months we'll be in stage four, which is when you get the real rally in yields and, and, and the long end of the Treasury curve uh, collapse and, and get a real nice total return. Um, in terms of the near term, listen, anything can happen. Right? Uh, I constantly am asked, and I'm sure you are, you know, what's the Fed going to do at the next meeting? Are they going to do 75? Are they going to do 50? But really, there are only two certainties out there. They are going to tighten, and earnings growth is going to slow. And in our view, you will have a, a profit recession. 
And so with those two certainties known over the next, let's call it six to 12 months, you know, we kind of think we know what the playbook is. So now that we have, you know, you, you know, you bring up a very valid point is that the, you're right, there are stages, right? And I think that, that these stages can occur quite frequently, but I think you would agree the velocity and the magnitude of the change in these stages has been almost historical. And, and you and I both know that it's not necessarily the level of interest rates, but how quickly you get there. So when we think about, not to mention the fact that, you know, you know, we know that U.S. interest rates don't work in a silo. And I think, you know, last week is, has been sort of the perfect example. Now, given the volatility that we've seen and given, um, you know, the view or the unfortunate situation that we might be in right now, that liquidity is not the most abundant right now. How do you see, like, what do you think has contributed to those swings that we've seen, you know, in the past month? Or how do you see this going forward? Will there ever be a time where we don't have such large swings in, you know, U.S. interest rates? Well, I, I do think eventually, um, you know, you'll get the liquidity to come back to the market, but it might take some time. I, I wouldn't hold my breath that, you know, you're not going to see the large swings that we have seen, um, you know, this year or perhaps even next year. So I'd expect these swings to persist for some time as global central banks, you know, just begin to unwind their balance sheets and engage in QT. And from that vantage point, you know, if you think about the last 10 years, it's been marked by lower than average inflation, quantitative easing, and, and, and low interest rates, you know, we happen to be able to view that the next 10 years are going to look the complete opposite. And we probably are going to have higher than average interest rates um, with higher inflation marked by quantitative tightening rather than quantitative easing. And so that process isn't going to be so clean and will likely, you know, keep some volatility um, in the market. But with that said, you know, listen, volatility is something that's worth paying attention to on a day-to-day basis. It clearly impacts things like credit markets and equity markets, and there's no doubt about that. But ultimately, fundamentals are going to matter most. And you just have to simply ask, what's the trajectory of inflation? Is it up or down? What's the trajectory of interest rates? Is it up or down? What's the trajectory of growth and, and earnings? Are they up or are they down? And if you kind of get those right, I think you're going to get the, the big picture and the, and the big themes um, correct. It's all about in this environment because of the volatility and the, and the inability to to play that volatility. Uh, I think it it is all the more important to see the forest through the trees and think about the medium to long term rather than just the the day to day. And so, regardless of volatility, we should see wider spreads because we're going into an earnings recession. Regardless of the volatility, we should see lower yields because earnings growth and economic growth is going to slow as the Fed ultimately tries to rein in inflation. And, and so, you know, for me, it's about seeing the, 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 the prize, right? It's the big picture. Um, so volatility is important, but it, it can't be the dominant thing in terms of how we invest. I completely agree with that. I mean, we have, you know, a lot of people sort of get caught up and they try to trade around this kind of volatility and, you know, they, and it ends up being a performance headwind, not a tailwind. And unfortunately, I think to your point, you know, we probably will be seeing, you know, volatility in the short term for quite some time, but that's not just, listen, with volatility creates opportunity. Um, although we've, it's been difficult this year because we've had such, uh, the velocity of interest rates rising and we've had such, um, you know, a, a, you know, the correlation sort of dismantling between equity and fixed income, it's created some headwinds. But over the long term, I, you know, I, I completely agree. You shouldn't be looking at one or two month to three or three month fall versus, you're necessarily risk-taking, but you should, look, you should look at it in an opportunistic way. But, you know, with that said, now that we have, as we went through the 
September FOMC meeting, which, you know, we knew 75. That was not, there was not a shocker there. But I do believe that the, the dot plot was a bit higher than what was anticipated. And the Fed came, you know, really reinforced within one voice their price stability over growth. And, you know, as, as a result, we saw, you know, year-end Fed funds projections, the peak in 23 projections, you know, all shift higher. So, so what is your view on what the market is pricing in as, as, as it relates to well, when we, we will see inflation come down or how, you know, fixed income might react to that? Yeah, I mean, we've always been in the camp that the Fed's going to have to hike more and stay restricted for longer than the market expects. And we've been saying that, I think, since the, the second half of 2020, as our view on inflation was that it wasn't transitory and that ultimately it was going to be the biggest concern for the Fed rather than growth. And that's really what they've hammered home since since Jackson Hole. Um, and I fully expect them to, you know, get to that 4.5% Fed funds rate in the next, you know, three or four months. And so I think that um, the market has woken up to that to that fact. And uh, and, and I think that's a, that's a good thing in a lot of ways, right, that there's a no longer too much of a mismatch in terms of market expectations and, and where the Fed is at. So I'd imagine they would go another, you know, certainly potentially 75 and 50 at the next two meetings. And, and that'll basically get you to that four and a half level. If you don't do that, you go 50, 50, 25. And that also gets you to that four and a half level. And so, um, you know, we, we think that's absolutely the case. The problem, if you want to call it a problem, it just depends on how you're positioned. It's not necessarily a problem if you're positioned, right? Of course, as you know, Leslie. But the problem is they're going to be hiking um, still aggressively to rein in that inflation into an earnings recession. And, and so, in, in a way, maybe they're happy about this because what you're likely to see is that as earnings growth declines, uh, as you get negative earnings growth, uh, as you get more restrictive uh, monetary policy and higher interest rates and, and higher funding costs, it spreads wide. And because of that, you know, it's hard to see an environment where the labor market remains quite as strong as it has so far, you know, this year. Um, you know, you've got the lag effect of policy, spreads wider, higher funding costs and, 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 and negative earnings growth. And, and my suspicion would be that ultimately, ultimately feeds through to labor and hiring and wages and you get a little bit of corporates doing the job for for the Fed in 2023, which allows them not to go to five, five and a half, or six percent on the Fed funds rate, and allows inflation to start start trending lower. Uh, but the big thing I think everybody should recognize is, you know, headline CPI is an important measure certainly, and the Fed cares about it. But we got to look at core, and and so far the the uh, the data on core has uh, core inflation is, is is a little bit trouble troublesome, right? And so you need wages to come down, you need rents to fall as well. But the plus side is it's not difficult to see a world where both rents and wages decline meaningfully next year. And so we don't have inflation forecast, but we are starting to think that uh, 2023 has the makings of, you know, a decline in inflation. How much? I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but certainly that 2023 has the, the beginnings of, of that trend. When we think about positioning with all of that, and, 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 you know, here's, you know, you and I have been in the industry long enough to know that even without the volatility that we've seen this year, during the fourth quarter, there's a lot of balance sheet window dressing that goes on, right? So with that sense, I mean, there's always a little bit of volatility as we had in the fourth quarter of the year. But, you know, here we sit today at, you know, the higher quality, quote unquote, um, sectors, you know, with really widespread, whether it's agency mortgage-backed securities, investment-grade corporates are at the widest spreads of the year, and you're being offered these deals that we haven't seen since since 2009, and high yield, you're offered well over 9.5%. 
So where are you currently positioned right now, given the view that you just stated for, say, the next you know, six months, 12 months out, and knowing what the market is currently priced in already, how are you positioned sort of going forward in terms of fixed income? I think there will be a wonderful opportunity in credit, uh, investment grade, as well as high yield uh, in the future. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's yet, you know. And you're absolutely right. Nine and a half percent on high yield is it, it, it sounds quite amazing, but spreads still have quite a ways they could still go. The risk premium of high yield to Treasuries is about 550 basis points, depending on you know what market measure you look at. And, and of course, in past cycles, you've seen well north of a thousand basis points demanded over Treasuries in, in order to um, in order to compensate you for default risk and downgrades and everything else. And so. I don't think we're going to get to a thousand basis points this cycle for a lot of reasons. Um, one of them being that whether it be high yield or, you know, investment grade, you have a very high quality, sound fundamental corporate landscape. You have a lot of cash and corporate balance sheets that turned out dead at very, very low interest rates. I think a lot of the riskier portions of the credit markets have actually been financed out of the private credit uh, area. And so the public markets are much safer than, than, than they've ever, ever been. If you look at that just on a rating basis, that's certainly the case. You have a higher proportion of double Bs than I think probably any other time in, in the history of, of corporate credit markets. But I, 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 although that is all true, I think that once you get negative earnings growth, as you have a Fed that continues to tighten into year-end, maybe into Q1 of next year, it's hard for me to see a world where spreads don't widen more and give you a potential even better opportunity uh, in the back half or even in the second quarter of 2023. So right now, from a risk-reward perspective, we like long-term treasuries. You know, we like long-term treasuries because, you know, you obviously don't have a spread widening component like you do in credit. Um, so why not own long-term treasuries and then switch out of long-term treasuries uh, upon a drop in yield into credit as spreads widen? I think that is the right playbook. The trick is, in order to do that effectively, you need to have very liquid products. And that's really hard to do when you're trade, you know, trading individual bonds in a portfolio. So I think this kind of goes to the idea of, of using ETFs to, to manage fixed income, where you can go and have no high yield today. But if you want to go to 10, 15, 20% of the portfolio in high yield in Q1 or Q2 of 2023, at much wider spreads, not necessarily much higher yields, but much higher spreads, you'll have the ability to do that efficiently and in a low-cost way. And so I think that's the playbook. Right now, it's long interest rate risk. We have about half the weight of the index in mortgages. Um, we have about half the index weight in investment-grade credit. And I would imagine that sometime in 23, those will go up more, uh, significantly more. So just in terms of, I just want to get your, your overall final thoughts in here as, as well before I switch back over to Dan. And, and this has been really great, and I appreciate your time, Mike. But outside of just what, what are your general thoughts? And it can be in like your view of either whether it's a dollar or EM or where are you th- where are you seeing sort of the most relative value now? I completely agree with you on the long treasury side, by the way. And I, and I actually um, think that is the right path to take. Um, particularly over the next six months. But just any follow, uh, final thoughts or insights, I would love to hear them. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, the dollar strength, um, as we know, is, is, is negative for um, two cohorts, right? One is uh, EM, uh, and obviously higher U.S. Treasury yields and, and the dollar strength make it very difficult for emerging markets to, to finance themselves in terms of, in terms of uh, dollar debt in particular. Uh, and the second is U.S. companies that are... Um, that uh, generate a majority of their revenue or a large portion of their revenue outside the U.S. And so we have uh, 
stayed away from emerging markets on the fixed income side. We have no emerging market exposure currently. And then on the equity side, we've, we've stayed away from, I know it's a fixed income conversation, but on the equity side, we've really stayed away from technology, consumer discretionary services, as they're the most exposed to the dollar strength from a revenue perspective. And so I think for us, the, the playbook is just defensive, right? Defensive in terms of treasuries, it's defensive in terms of in fixed income staying within the United States, uh, and it's defensive on the uh, equity side as being in staples, healthcare, utilities, and out of sort of the growthy areas of the market. I think that's, for us, that's the playbook certainly for the next, you know, three to six months. And then, you know, you're con- we're constantly reevaluating based on based on our models and what the fundamentals are telling us. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for your time. And, and Dan, I'm going to just send it over to you. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, Leslie, Mike, thank you again for joining our listeners, our clients here on UBS Market Moves for the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast. Again, we've been joined today by Mike Antopoulos, Director of Fixed Income for RBA, Richard Bernstein Advisors, as well as Leslie Falconio, Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, Mike, Leslie, thank you again for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Mike. I really appreciate your insights. Of course. Thank you, Dan, and, uh, and thank you, Leslie. Have a wonderful week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.